you guys hear me? Can anybody hear me? Can you give me a thumbs up if you can hear me? All right. So I just want to really confirm we're rocking and rolling again. <laughs> can you give me a thumbs up if you guys heard any of my intro last time, any of the music, anything like that? Did you guys hear anything at all last time or uh, no? No. Okay. All right. So I'm going to pretend we're going to start again. Bear with me. I really appreciate all of this. Here we go with the latest episode of Colin. Can you tell me if you can hear this audio? Oh, nope. That's a lie. One second. Oh, goodness gracious. I'm so sorry, guys. I don't know why this is such a cluster F. Um, but this should be working. Mm. Nope. Guys, I don't know what to do. I'm like, so here's the thing. <laughs> Let me explain what's happening here. They sent me this um, Rode soundboard, which I'm very excited about and has I've been using pretty successfully up until this point. But for some reason today, this is not going through the soundboard. I did this really dazzling intro for you guys just now that apparently was not audible in any respect. And now I'm looking at my computer that doesn't seem to be recognizing the Rode device as being plugged in at all. Which is frustrating. Um, but, you know, we're going to... Oh, there it goes. Okay. All right. Can you guys hear this audio? I think that he is, in fact, part of the same... Okay, now we're going to start this. We're going to, I'm going to cut the beginning off of this when I make it live. I really appreciate your patience. Here we go. This is how I intended to start the show. If you want to run against a doctor. Does that mean you guys couldn't actually hear that audio? All those thumbs down? Yeah, come talk to me. You're you're my interlocutor here. You're my guy from the other side who's helping me figure all of this out because this is this is a mess. Come on up on stage and um and explain to me what you guys can hear and not hear. Yahan, can you unmute yourself? Yeah, I can. Sorry. Hi. Um, so you can hear me, but you couldn't hear the, the audio I was playing? Well, it's odd, right? Because we could hear it at first, and then it cut out maybe about five seconds in, um, which kind of might indicate that, well, what, what is, is it connected to a hard line, which is like, I'm trying to visualize what well, your no. setup is like. Well, I stopped it after some seconds because I was seeing a bunch of thumbs downs. So, okay, let's try this one more time. Johan, speak up if you can't hear this, yeah, okay? Otherwise, we're just going to let it play. All right. One yes, more time. Let's try this, guys. The official start of this podcast. <laughs> if you want to run against a doctor. 
kind oh, of man. medical. And, and now you wait, what? Mute. Okay, there you go. Okay, you just went mute for a second, but it was. Oh, it was if I mute myself, the thing mutes as well. There you go. Okay, what kind of sense <laughs> does that make? All right, this is Fakakta. It's okay. All right, I'm glad we figured this out. God bless you, Jan, for walking me through this. You, you're invaluable. Oh, Bree, by the way, um, yes. it's pronounced Jahan. Jahan, I'm sorry about that, Jahan. Thank you so no, much. No I really problem. appreciate I it. You'd like to know. That's all. All right, Jahan. We're we're in this together. One more time. Let's do this, guys. We got this. We got this. All right, here we go. Let's do it. If you want to run against a Dr. Oz, it is about recognizing that he is, in fact, part of the same kind of medical industrial complex uh, that exists to sell you things that you don't need that are not actually based in uh, any level of science. And yet he can plaster the, the Columbia University uh, College of Physicians and Surgeons over that to say, well, I'm a doctor, so you should trust what I have to say. What's interesting to me and what gives me some pause for concern, if I will just go ahead and put my cards on the table is that there has been a way that science has been talked spoken about by the left that is in fact a lighting extent to which that the, the, the broad left liberals are politicizing this to an equal degree. The way liberals think about this and the way conservatives think about this is so, so far apart uh, in a way that I, I still, you know, you're still seeing Dr. Um, Fauci, hagiography and prayer camp, the photo camp, oh, yeah. things of that nature. You're still seeing that people are clinging to it even more despite the fact that it's not convincing anyone who doesn't like Fauci to any of their conservative relatives. All right. Hello and welcome to the newest episode of The Debrief on the Call-In app. As always, we are talking about the most recent episode of Bad Faith Podcast, which aired yesterday. It's a free episode. You can get wherever you got your podcast. We spoke to David Weigel of the Washington Post, who's on the left beat, and Dr. Abdul Al-Sayed, former gubernatorial candidate in um, Michigan, and a Bernie surrogate himself about the recent um, candidacy of Dr. Oz for the open Senate seat in Pennsylvania. Now, this has caught some people's attention for some good and some bad reasons. We are at risk of falling into the trap that was the Andrew Yang mayoral candidacy in New York City, where perhaps the media might overly focus on the famous big name in the race to the exclusion of paying attention to other phenomena that are happening, like Eric Adams. However, this far out, my interest in this race is that I've observed that Dr. Oz seems to be plotting a path forward, um, using COVID to kind of highlight some, I think, sincerely felt anti-authoritarian feelings among the population, skirting classification as an anti-vaxxer per se, and using his doctor credentials to give him some credibility as he emphasizes certain aspects of the science that kind of give a little credence to folks who already have a lot of ambivalence about COVID and some of the mandates, et cetera, that are coming down the pike. And I am concerned that if liberals don't figure out how to respond to this outside of simply saying, you must believe in science, you must trust science, they're not going to get very far. Dr. Fauci recently said, I am science. Of course, we all remember the way that masks were politicized early in COVID where we were told not to wear them and that doing so if we were to wear them, could cause harm to first uh, responders, et cetera. Um, we were discouraged from using them. And there's been some back and forth 
on many aspects of COVID that have made people distrustful of the democratic line that there is no politicization happening on the left the way there is on the right. So we engage substantively in that. But before we get to that conversation or anything else you guys want to talk about, because you know this is at the end of the day and ask me anything, um, I want to flag a couple of pieces of big, good news. Um, Some of you might have caught a live stream that um, Katie Halper helped to organize and we did in Crystal Ball's studio and Marion Williamson also attended. That was aimed at getting uh, Stephen Donzinger, the human rights attorney who famously won the largest judgment against an oil company in history, a $9.5 billion judgment of which Chevron has paid absolutely nothing um, in the Amazon in Ecuador. He was subsequently persecuted and was the subject of a corporate prosecution, which landed him unprecedentedly in jail where he's been for about six weeks. Hours after our stream ended, there was news that he was actually released from prison. So he's still in house arrest, but he is home. So that is something that we definitely should be celebrating on the left. Additionally, uh, it's excellent news for those of you who have been following Shama Sawant, the Seattle City Councilwoman's solidarity campaign to defeat the right-wing recall effort against her. She was successful nearly yesterday um, in, in keeping her seat. I know that the people associated with her campaign and also Socialist Alternative have been working tirelessly to help keep her in place. I flew out in solidarity to help support and raise money on a rally over the course of the summer. Um, and so I know how hard people have been working, so I want to take a moment to recognize that and we should be getting an update on the podcast from Chama Sawant shortly. I see the queue has come back, so I'm going to go ahead and start taking callers um, to see where you guys are at. Of course, we can talk about the most recent episode. I can take your questions about that or anything else that's been going on in the world. Let's hear from you, Nick. Hi, Brian. Hey, Nick. Uh, so, um, and uh, I also donated to the Shama uh, recall efforts in the Donziger. So I'd like to personally take uh, credit for the successes, <laughs> if, if that's okay. I may as well. Uh, but um, Absolutely. Let's give you a round of applause for that. Thank you. And um, I don't know if on the soundboard you've got like a, a toilet flushing sound queued up for when I mentioned the Democrats, but... Uh, well... How about this? Perfect. (laughs) Um, So the thing that this episode kind of uh, brought to mind in me, and I think that this is an interesting level of discourse around COVID, but, and nobody's really giving it kind of a fair shake, which is, I'm going to say something incredibly controversial, which is uh, stuff that like Jimmy Dore and Max Blumenthal have been talking about with like COVID discourse and policy which I think they've actually touched mm-hmm. on a couple interesting things that no one's actually wanted to substantively engage with, probably because they're just going to be beaten with the anti-vax stick in public discourse or whatever. I guess everybody's just kind of afraid of it. But like, I think one of the most interesting kind of points that Jimmy has made in his streams over the last couple of weeks that I, I think honestly rings kind of true and is at the heart of a lot of like discourse that I'm seeing even around like Facebook with the whole like... Uh, uh, skepticism surrounding it. And I think he, ma- he makes kind of an excellent point, which is the democratic strategy with COVID right now, especially the emphasis on like vaccination on the method to make it go away. It's specifically to avoid the treatment aspect of it, because as soon mm-hmm. as uh, public health actually becomes about treatment of it with the, you know, monocloidals that like somebody like Trump got to overcome it, despite his clear, you know, uh, disastrous comorbidities and whatnot. But 
The thing is, if they're specifically avoiding the treatment aspect of it, then that means that they never actually have to take any sort of substantive step towards like actual public health, which I think is kind of by design. But um, the other thing that I just kind of noticed from the last discussion, and and I guess this is uh, more about just where your head's at in general, which is... um, and I've kind of noticed this in your language over the last couple of weeks, which is, you know, even referring to democratic victories or the democratic party, or just, you know, that fr- framing as the, the, like the Royal we statements. And what I've been thinking about, mm-hmm. especially with this particular uh, conversation is I'm not even sure that there's all that much use or sincerity or, uh, anything really on the democratic side of things. Cause I know that the point of the episode is to give actual, you know, whoever the democratic contender is some actual substantive way to combat this, that would make them win over the Republican. But like, from my perspective, if the Democrats really cared about COVID and keep, keeping people safe, then they would have delayed, you know, the primary and Joe Biden wouldn't have, you know, taken literal hostages <laughs> to, uh, you know, do a coup and basically win. And, you know, ultimately, one of my big criticisms of Bernie is that, like, I, I would have risked it to go in person to vote for him. You know, he just kind of ultimately bended to the authority of the Democrats, which really, I think, is what this whole public thing is about, especially the whole believe science thing. It's not really sincere. It's just submitting to a different kind of authority on, you know, the other kind, the other coin of the same political yeah. party. But the but so- um, one other point mm-hmm. that I want to make before you respond mm-hmm. is... um. Uh, what personally is your hesitance to just kind of, you know, softly just let the Democratic Party die for one thing? And then uh, the other thing is, uh, if if I were at the helm of a successful podcast and concerned about a race in Pennsylvania, I'd just be like, let's raise a million dollars and get Sherry Honkala to run for Senate, you know? Okay, well, thank you, Nick. Um, A few things. Uh, I don't think I have the capacity to say words and raise a million dollars. I think that people might have an outsized sense of uh, the power. You know, I, I support myself with a Patreon account and, you know, the maximum money we raise is, you know, from the 6,000 odd people was not that many people in the grand scheme of the world who decide to give $5 a month. Right. And that's a far cry from a million dollars. I think the reality is that, with respect to why I don't want to let the Democratic Party die is because that the Democratic Party dying doesn't mean that, you know, a beautiful socialist third party alternative springs up in the ashes overnight. It means we have a lot of real human beings who live in these districts and municipalities where there are real life consequences for them when Republicans are in charge. And I think it's a little irresponsible to pretend as though there aren't real world consequences from elections. Like I understand that there's a lot of skepticism and frustration about the value of electoral politics, but I agree with Bernie when he said after dropping out that it was irresponsible to not participate. Now people took that comment as a rebuke of me personally, but I agree with him. Of course it's irresponsible not to participate. And my call was never for people to sit out the election, but to consider voting third party and being active in other ways, right? There are certainly other ways to be participatory outside of electoral context altogether. Um, you're, you also, I think, uh, I, for, I forget, part of why I wanted to cut you off was because I just can't keep track of everything that you were asking. So I think in the future, if people want to just go ahead and let me interject, I'll let them finish their points. But otherwise, it's very difficult for me to remember what was even asked. 
Um, but the long and short of it is, as I do think that there, this particular race is worth paying attention to because there are a lot of ways that COVID and genuine anxieties around COVID are currently being exploited by politicians who see that those anxieties are sincere. And the re- response on the left has been to pretend that everything is insincere and by people who just simply are so stupid, so daft, that they don't understand what science is. But to your point, Nick, the first time that science was weaponized, in my recollection, was during the Democratic primary. When my 2016 um, uh, you know, mirror twin, <laughs> Simone Sanders, um, who was obviously working for the Biden uh, administration at the time, or Biden campaign at the time, went on... Uh, I believe it was CNN the night of the last debate and told people that the CDC had recommended that it was safe to vote. Of course, the CDC had actually just issued a recommendation that people shouldn't um, get together in rooms, uh, uh, get together in groups of 10 people or more, which unless you're at a voting outpost in the middle of Anchorage somewhere is probably (laughs) probably means that your voting facility is not safe for you, according to the CDC recommendations at that time. But nobody dinged her or the Biden campaign for any kind of misinformation. As I pointed out that she was incorrect, um, kind of patiently, not an effort to ding her per se, but just to point out that that was in fact factually and scientifically incorrect in the internet. There was absolutely no interest in that story or no interest in offering any pushback because it became very clear that Bernie was going to get strong-armed in his kind of good-natured desire not to kill off American voters by forcing them into the voting booth meant that he basically wound down his campaign and endorsed Joe Biden within a number of days in contrast to how it went down in 2016. And I think that people on the left, accordingly, have skepticism of the way that science is being weaponized. And then people on the right, for obvious reasons, also feel the same way. But it's not just a world of anti-vaxxers and vaxxers, right? Even Donald Trump told people to get vaxxed and got vaxxed on TV. And I think that Democrats have to be a lot more nuanced in their language if they are going to have an effective response to the kind of weaponization of COVID, not just in this kind of context, but also in the school closures context, if they want to have even a fighting chance in midterms. Um. I'm going to go ahead and, oh, sorry, you're still up here as speaker. Want to go ahead and ask your question? Yes, Jahan, sorry. sorry. Yes, um, actually, Bree, I wanted to um, tell you that I have a surprise for you. Oh, um, wow. <laughs> I, don't, I didn't tell you why I haven't had a chance, but in my profile does say I'm a composer, and I have taken the liberty of creating a holiday slash winter slash Christmas, whatever you celebrate, version of the Bad Face podcast, Bad Faith podcast oh theme. Goodness. So I'd like to send that to you um, uh, at some point, and I'd like to know how, and maybe we can talk about that um, somewhere else if, you know, I don't know. Please, you can email it to the Bad Faith uh, uh-huh. email address, which I totally absolutely no offhand and I'm not now pulling up on my computer. <laughs> I'm pretty sure it's like badfaith at gmail.com or something, but let me let me just confirm. Yeah. It's badfaithpodcast at gmail.com. Okay, badfaithpodcast at gmail. Okay. I will do that today. Oh, I'm so excited. Thank you. That is so sweet of you. I, I love everything about oh. that. I it's an honor and I hope you like it. It's pretty cool. Well, thank you. Big, big applause to you. I'm going to kick you off of speakers. <laughs> to have you up here, Ben. Thank you for that, and thank you for all of your uh, technical help as I as I make my way through this morass. 
For sure. All right. Thank you. All right. Um, who is next? Nick, we just had you. Uh, so I think Zach is up at bat. Hi, Bree. Um, Hi, Zach. Que pasa? Uh, well, it's funny you said that. I actually just took a French final today. Um, I'm a freshman in college. Mm, come on, that too. Come see, come It's forever, come see, come isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's always the easiest one. Um, yeah, but uh, yeah, I mean, I'm a huge fan of the show. Um, I really love like listening to your perspective and um, hearing your interviews with guests. And I guess as much as I would also love to continue talking about sort of COVID and Dr. Oz and Omicron and mandates and that kind of thing. I just was wondering if I could get your take on like an issue, a policy issue that really interests me, um, but that I don't know Mm. if I've heard you sort of expound upon yet. Um, It's possible that you have, I just haven't seen it. Um, But I'm really interested in like, drug legalization and or or, um, and looking at the ways in which drug criminalization in the u.s um like make drug use more dangerous um and can also uh lead to you know uh certain populations um like black and poor people getting targeted disproportionately when drug use across the board is pretty steady regardless of racial group or economic uh mm-hmm. stra- strata um and i was i'm just really interested in this guy dr carl hart and he's like a professor at columbia um and i just was wondering like especially because i've been reading some stuff on twitter lately like about how there's a bit of a debate and it's been going on for a while but just between people who some people think that like you know, in a, in a future socialist or communist utopia, um, that drug use would, would be completely antithetical to the, the goals and the the missions of the society. And some people think like, no, actually, um, you know, drug use should be even more accessible and available to responsible adults. Um, so I guess I, I don't, I, sorry to go on for so long, but I just wonder your you know perspective mm. on like criminalization legalization and and how that all connects to potential sort of revolutionary um you know fervor uh it's not really the right word but yeah mm. yeah uh, revolutionary objectives let's say thank you for that zach you know i i certainly wouldn't claim to be um any expert in this area and we definitely should do an episode on legalization, especially given that, um, you know, Joe Biden is certainly no leader in this regard, but he did at least say he was going to back decriminalization, uh, which hasn't happened yet. And of course, many people on the left are arguing that given how popular decriminalization is or legalization is of marijuana, that th- that would be a real slam dunk, easy thing for him to do, especially it's because it's one of those uh, executive order style things where he doesn't need you know, the Senate majorities to do it. Um, and given the flailing status of Democrats going into midterms, he should really be grasping for any available straw. I also very much share the belief um, that our draconian approach 
to the use of currently illegal drugs does absolutely very little in terms of deterrence, obviously creates black markets and all kinds of down trickle down crime effects, disproportionately affects um, communities of color. And as legalization comes on a state by state basis, we should have policies that help to direct the benefits of legalization toward the communities that have been disproportionately affected and shut out of that industry. That, of course, was a core aspect of Bernie Sanders' uh, legalization policy, but who knows what Wild Wild West are in with respect to the Biden campaign. With regard to the, the question of how you see drug use manifesting in an ideal kind of utopian future, and that's an interesting question. I mean, I think that it is true that so much of drug use is about people medicating themselves for societal fl- failings or lack of being able to access real health care, substantive free health care. And I would obviously hope that in a utopian future, neither of those things were necessary, right? People weren't medicating because they were depressed and certainly not because they were depressed about the kind of social conditions um, that are extent under capitalism today. Um, and if they are depressed uh, for other reasons, certainly I can think of a lot of reasons to get depressed on a bleak Star Trek style spaceship with all of that ambient ambient lighting and known natural light um, that you would have access to actual free health care and therapy and not have to go it alone. The other thing that popped into my mind is um, I don't know if you saw the new iteration of Brave New World or obviously just read the book, um, but the new series on. And was it Discovery, Apple TV, I don't know, something like that, really, you know, highlighted a kind of really pernicious version of drug use where it was used to basically um, satiate the desires of the masses and keep them compliant, um, which is another interesting way to consider how uh, drugs could manifest in a different kind of dystopian future. But I think that's a really fascinating possibility to just kind of thought experiment to play out on a podcast at some point and i'll consider the kinds of guests that might be good to come on and and do that you know i love to play out these games in the framework of a sci-fi scenario um, and i hope to do that to that end i also programmed this new sound into the keyboard (laughs) oh we have fun all right. Thank you for that. Let's hear from Brian. Hey, Brian. Want to hit unmute? There we go. Thank you. <laughs> Hi. Yeah, of course. Um, How you doing? I'm good. You know I really want to talk shit about sex in the city, but I can try to stay on, on topic. Um, I mean, we can do it. <laughs> you know I want to. But go ahead. If you're down, I'm down because the way that they wrote Miranda is like next level wild. And I feel so bad for Cynthia because I know she's not that bad in real life. Same. I mean, obviously we all love Cynthia Nixon, Um, you know, lefty gubernatorial candidate that should have been. And in particular, I mean, this isn't just, you know, two friends chit chatting about sex in the city here. I do think there's a really interesting perspective in how, the kind of liberals see themselves and what has with how they see entertainment, because it is true that kind of white guilt is being served up on the show as some kind of entertainment, as though I, as a viewer, am supposed to be enjoying the ways that they ritualistically humiliate these characters on the screen. 
And I imagine it's for me, especially as like a, a black consumer, I'm supposed to enjoy, you know, Cynthia Nixon on some level, or Miranda being told off by a black professor when she does a microaggression. But honestly, like, I just, I feel like it doesn't respect the intent of the characters and the original intent of the show. I never watched Sex in the City for any kind of social justice advice or direction at all. And they come up with the most absurd, over-the-top versions of what racism or microaggressions or whatever look like, that it almost diminishes the argument that there is any kind of racism going on at present, right? Because it's so cartoonish that it's like, I, I don't even want to believe this is true. And then moreover, there, no one's ever really accountable for the bad things that they do do. It's just kind of like Miranda saying, oh, gosh, I know I was a moron. I didn't mean to say that, but you know I'm not really racist. And then everyone just moves on so what's the point yeah and they're also doing this weird thing where they're trying to have it both ways like they're trying to um admonish white people for being problematic whatever Mm -hmm. but then they'll also play like mario i forget his name but um one of the gay besties Mm -hmm. a joke about black charlotte like for laughs oh just like i can play it pick a side can you hear that yes here give that to black charlotte So I'm just, I was like, I'm confusion. Like, which is it? Like, are we, are we being socially just or are we like doubling down? And it's this weird thing, especially when, and you and I talked about this on Twitter a little bit, like the way that Mm -hmm. like they, um, the lines they gave to the Asian adopted daughter, Charlotte's daughter. Okay. Well, we have to play this because for people, for people who don't know, I know you might be thinking, oh God, they're talking about sex and silly. Let me check out. But I promise you, you're going to be into this. Listen to this. Hi everyone. That's it. That's all the greeting. Oh, let me sell the scene for those of you who can't see it. So it's it's the Charlotte character coming home to her adopted daughter and her dog. Okay, so it's her, you know, uh, East Asian adopted daughter. They don't. I don't know if they ever clarify on the show where she's adopted from, and a dog on her lap. I just want to be clear: it's a human child and a dog. All right, here we go. Hi everyone. That's it. That's all the greeting I get after I rescued you. Are you talking to me or Burton? Because you rescued me too. Lily, that is a terrible thing to say. Are you guys, are you guys understanding what's happening? (laughs) She's clearly talking to the dog who's a rescue. They put this idea, they put this line into the daughter's mouth, which I cannot believe the daughter would ever say, but some writer you know, some white writers thinking, oh, Charlotte, the hero of this story, rescued both this child and this dog, rescued. <laughs> and these are synonymous. And someone had to put this line on paper. Yeah. As an Asian adopting myself, I can guarantee you that child did not say that. I to pro- tag the yeah, face right. <laughs> It's <laughs> next level. And to connect it to um, the Dr. Oz thing, mm-hmm. I do think that, like, this whole year and the COVID lockdown is showing that like white liberals really do live in a bubble sometimes because I don't think, Mm. I don't think some of them are ready for what's going to happen in fall 2022. Like I really think that the Mm. red tsunami is going to take a lot of them by surprise. And they just don't understand that like lockdown was not fun for everybody. And the majority of people do not want to go back. To March and April of 2020. It was not like Pod Save America, where people were drinking red wine in the shower <laughs> at 11 a.m. 
and their DC apartment <laughs> next to Pete Buttigieg. <laughs> like, like it was hard for a lot of people. A lot of people, like my roommate, for example, like when he's working, he's a personal trainer and he also works in the um, bartending industry. He makes good money, but when he was locked down, he was cut off. It took like weeks to apply properly to the um, unemployment because the website kept crashing because they couldn't expect all of that mm-hmm. volume. And he was extremely mm-hmm. depressed. And I don't think people really talk about like the mental health aspects of like what locking down does. And even some people on the left, like not to name names, but like whatever, like when like Walker, <laughs> when Walker's always like, we need to lock down now. I'm just like, it's like you're asking to get ratioed. Like, um, well, let, let's talk about it. Let, let's talk about that, Brian, because I think there's an interesting tension here where we certainly saw in other parts of the world countries that handled lockdowns in ways that mitigated some of the negative consequences, right? So we certainly can't imagine a world where there is a lockdown and people are getting groceries delivered, paid for by the state, as happened in certain countries where people are getting full employment benefits or recurring checks, which happened in other countries and where the um, effects, the negative effects of a lockdown were largely assumed by the state as opposed to being heaped on individuals. And, you know, how do you feel about that? Because it does seem like there is, uh, you can obviously imagine a instance where the best way to actually address the spread of a virus is to do a lockdown. And sometimes I think that because we live in a country where there is no real mitigation effort, no real effort from the state to help to alleviate the consequences of some of these measures, which are difficult and land to your point squarely and harshly on individuals that we end up in these kind of binaries where it's either lockdown, not lockdown, instead of saying, well, ideally perhaps there would be a lockdown to help curb the spread of COVID, but also it would provide for, all of these negative externalities, which right now we individually are supposed to be assuming. Of course, there's also this kind of authoritarian concern about what it means to have a lockdown, which is a slightly separate but warranted issue to discuss. What do you what do you think about that? So I, I don't ratio Walker. Like I personally am not anti-lockdown and I'm, I'm all for, as a lefty, the state like guaranteeing a floor for people. I think the problem in America is that um, so few people have class consciousness that they really buy into like the individualism of um, the worst parts of the American project. And I'm, and you know, you just got me to thinking like all of this hullabaloo about like critical race theory in school, like we need to teach, like we need to do that. And we need to teach like critical class theory and like the history of labor and um, just all of these things that, will get people to buy in to the fact that like there is a better way when we all are in this together, not to sound corny and other countries, other countries are less resistant to that. And I think that um, we're kind of an outlier compared to some other, other nations. Yeah, I'm a hundred percent with you. And I, I, in fact, we did an interview today for Monday's premium episode. I'll go ahead and spoil it here. Here's a call in exclusive. Um, it's with uh, Ian, uh, professor Ian Hanny Lopez, who does some of the best, messaging along with uh, Heather McGee insofar as they actually test these left messages that we're already always talking about in real populations. And so they're not just talking hypothetically out of their butt about what works and what doesn't work. They know what works. And um, he literally actually used that same phrase that we're all in this together mode of talking about it. And I think that we should all lean in to this high school musical mindset 
Right, the theme song is already written. The theme song is already written. But. I'm sorry, I'll stop. Yes. But yeah, in closing, I just want to say um, I love, like, thank you for taking my call. I love being able to speak with you. And Luther, it's my pleasure. Luther Vandross is the GOAT. So we can talk about that more some other time, too. Um, thank you. I'm having an ongoing debate with someone in my life about that who there's like a there's a ranking of the all time best male singers. And they put Luther at like 11 below. Disrespectful. Really like some real some real stinkers <laughs> wait is this but is this relevant to like the white hegemony talk because, always what is not yeah. relevant to the white hegemony? no because it's funny because you said that like the week that you were talking about the beatles it wasn't super politically mm-hmm. relevant i actually think it really mm-hmm. is super politically relevant in terms of like why the left sometimes has challenges like growing its its um base to be more diverse because like People just don't relate to each other. And, like, I just think about my friends and, like, my friends are just very different from, like, the people that I vibe with on Twitter. And Mm. that's not, like, a judgment one way or the other. But it does get me to think, like, like, we do have to figure out a way to, like, leverage um, relationships in a a better way. Yeah, I will say that sometimes I think that there's not enough value put on being likable and friendly and relating to other people, whether it's through music or just general interpersonal goodness. And I will say, having done some of these interviews I've been doing recently with some folks on the IDW or the right, it is a notable difference. Um, of how their audiences respond to me going on their shows and me having them on my shows to how my audience responds to them. Um, and I'm not saying one person is better than other. Your moral merit is uh, judged, should be judged by how you like respond in the Patreon comments, right? Like if you subscribe to, you know, broadly a right-wing worldview, you're not a good person just because you're nice to me when I go on some right winger show, obviously, but it does, I think, say something about our ability to coalition build where, you know, if I, if I interview, you know, Thomas Chatterson Williams and he tweets out a picture of us, all of his comments are like, Oh, I really look forward to hearing this. I don't agree with Brianna, but you know, I really appreciate that she's open to debate. And I think this is going to be an interesting conversation and, Oh, she made some points. And then when I retweet the photo, it's, ah, you're talking to that evil varmint, uh, Thomas Chatterson Williams. And I'm almost embarrassed to retweet it. Cause I know I'm going to be subjecting him to a bunch of, um, abuse. <laughs> I mean, it, it's, it's an interesting dynamic that it's just worth observing on the left. Yeah. And again, like 2022 and 2024, it's going to get ugly and like, I can just smell it in the air when I go home and I look at gas prices and I listen to like the way my family talks about politics and where's home, um, Connecticut, which sounds like a blue state, but like, if you really break it down, if you don't live in like Hartford, New Haven mm-hmm. or Bridgeport, mm-hmm. it's not, a, it's not a blue state. So yeah, <laughs> my mother, my mother's always making that point because she's from Cleveland and she's thinking about moving home and you know, my brother hates it. She's like, I can't believe you're, you're moving to the Midwest. It's going to be so conservative. And she always points out that Cleveland is a much bluer city. It's like 85% blue. Obviously, Ohio isn't, but Cleveland is. And something like New York, which is only like 
60% blue because, you know, we've got Staten Island, we've got other bits that are not that liberal. Right. Yeah. I mean, the way liberals like want to like kill everybody in the South, it's just really weird because right. the actual divide is between cities and um, rural areas. But mm-hmm. that's a, another discussion. I'm going on a tangent. But anybody who doesn't put for vocals, Luther in the top 10, <laughs> like, no, I'm sorry, but no. Uh, go ahead and clip that and I will like send it to the friend that I'm arguing with right now. Thank you, Brian. I yeah. appreciate that. <laughs> All right. Thanks, Brie. I'll talk to you All later. Right. And, and remember, everybody. <laughs> All right, taking the next caller. All right, Jahan, right? That's right. All right, we're back. What's going on? So about the Dr. Oz episode, um, Mm -hmm. I thought it was so interesting that you guys were kind of talking about how him sort of peddling and pushing these pseudoscience drugs and um, treatments for certain conditions on his show, you know, were somehow like very personal, acute character flaws, as opposed to, I mean, I I kept thinking, where's Richard Wolf to implicate, you know, the incentives of capitalism, right? And how Mm. all of us, everybody that has to participate in the market to some extent um, has, you know, kind of ends up doing the same thing in, in, in different ways. Um, what do you, it's like this over uh, mm. emphasizing of someone's personal choice as opposed to actually implicating the system. And it kind of bothers me. And it, it bothers me that that's not a part of the, the whole conversation and that it, like if someone's going to attack him on it, they're, they're just going to attack him personally. I don't know. That's so interesting because that's kind of the argument he made, right? Like there was, when he was, so he was called in front of um, a Senate committee that was basically checking him, chastising him for uh, marketing all of uh-huh. these, you know, weight loss, gut health, um, non-scientifically supported um, <laughs> medications or whatever on his show. And one of the arguments that he made in in the Senate hearings was to say, like, you know, they're all of the, you know, I, I will admit to using a kind of a salesmanship that was very natural to the context of being a TV personality, but was perhaps inappropriate as a doctor. And people see that I'm Dr. Oz. And he seemed to almost be acknowledging that he was under these kinds of pressures that he acknowledged were leading him to do things that he was apologetic for, at least in that context, whether or not you think he's sincere is a different question. But, you know, he, 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 even he seemed to be pointing to the fact that like he was in a constrained environment. And of course, this is kind of what he had to do because he's on TV and this is what people on TV have to do. And then later on in the context of this run, I, you know, and I think we played this clip during the episode. I think it was in an an interview with either Sean Hannity or on Newsmax. He basically completely inverted it and completely flipped it and said, look, they're coming after me, an individual for basically being a product of my environment. When the real bad guys are all of these social media folks, all of the Facebooks and stuff that allow all of these companies to use clips from my show to sell these unlicensed products. And they don't want to come down on the Zuckerbergs of the world because they take money from them and they're powerful. So instead they're going to turn me into the scapegoat. And regardless of whether or not that's a deflection of responsibility, there is something that has the ring of truth Uh and that uh, the Uh big guy, the little guy, the 1%, the 99%, the corporatist versus me that resonates. And I think will resonate with people. I know. And yeah, you're right. It does. It does have that grain of truth in it. And what are we going to do about that? 
but unless the people start to be able to implicate the whole system and they don't, otherwise we're not gonna be able to like sort of pick, pick all these things apart. You know what I mean? Yeah, well, you know, I really recommend everyone listen to Monday's um, premium episode, which I recorded this morning, because I'm telling you, uh, Professor Haney Lopez really put, he, 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 you know, I interview a bunch of people and sometimes I get the criticism mm. that I already know what I think and I'm basically just arguing with them to agree with me. <laughs> Some, he, but I will admit that sometimes that is true, but he what? not only agreed with me, he, he was, ba- he went farther than me. And I think his analysis was more sophisticated on some of these messaging things. And he w- was able to put a really fine point on exactly the kind of language you have to use to reverse the messaging that's been already co-opted mm-hmm. from the right. So they've already done this like reverse Uno on the left language, right? They've said, of course, racism is bad. And now they're doing <laughs> racism through CRT, right? Like th- they've already done one step of flipping our arguments back. And now anti-racism work, a- anti-racism work is racism. Okay. You can't just respond to that by saying, no, it isn't. Or that's not what CRT means. You, you have to provide an alternative script you know, a replacement script. And that replacement script has to be CRT is the product of Christopher Rufo, who intentionally is spreading this misinformation because he's being paid by the 1%. He's being paid by the Manhattan Institute to put out racially divisive messages that divide us up and keep the working classes divided and fighting with each other. So the 1% wins, obviously puts it more eloquently than I do. But again, Getting that top-down script that says there is an enemy, it, there are these elites that are working uh-huh. to divide up the working class, using racism against us, stoking racism to divide us up. Because that's what the right are saying right now, right? They're saying the left is using racism to divide us up. And instead of challenging that and saying, oh, no, actually, here is the elite on the right that's using racism to divide us up. The left response so far, or the liberals response so far has kind of been like, no, we aren't. Also, here's CRT is being misdefined, uh, poorly defined. And it's true, CRT is being poorly defined, but that mm-hmm. is not a counter narrative. That's going back to the original narrative, which says, I'm right already. And to the extent that you're identifying any problems in the way the world is operating right now, you're naive and stupid and you just don't understand facts. It's a version of Hillary Clinton saying, America is already great in response to make America great again. I think the more effective thing is to say, yes, let's make America great. Great. <laughs> let's make America greater. Let's do the more perfect union, which was the verbiage Obama used, I think, to great effect by preventing mm. the 1% from dividing us up to advance their agenda instead of ours. Yeah. Um, but so it's, I think that's, I think it's a really powerful episode and I encourage everybody to listen. Obviously, if, I know a lot of people under financial constraints. If you can't subscribe, I always try to put the most important parts of premium episodes on Bad Faith YouTube for free. Um, So go ahead over there, subscribe to the channel, hit the notification bell so you don't miss um, those clips dropping. But I think it's going to be a really good one. Absolutely. And I need to know, Brie, who are these other 11 singers that are ahead of us? Okay, let me just just know because uh, (laughs) I, I was livid. Now, I'm not trying to get into another war yeah. about the Beatles. I understand that there's some people on this list that I also think are good, even if they're not as good as Luther. Just like you can still think the Beatles are very great, even if they're also overrated. These are not these are not mutually exclusive categories. Okay. Um, top 10 male right, right. the list that I was looking at. I think this is the list I was looking at. You're about to be oh, so mad. God. Let me make sure this is. Because Luther might not even be on this list. Luther's not even on this list oh. I'm looking at right now. Okay, this wasn't Oh, good God. This is, this is, this is, mm. 
I'm upset. Okay, but that's not the list. Where is this list? Maybe it's this top 20 male singers of all time smooth radio. Let's see. You know, I will admit. Oh, here it is. Here it is. Okay, you got it. Okay. I got it. Okay. 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 They have Luther at number 10. I'm not even going to get. They have Stevie at 13, which I'll allow because I think his talent is in being a songwriter, not necessarily in his vocal capacity. Okay. 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 Nine is Marvin Gaye. Which I guess I'll allow, but I still think Luther's a better singer. I'm sorry. Yeah, hands down. He doesn't have better songs than Marvin. Right. Gaye, but exactly. Vocalist. Just Come on. Voc- as a vocalist. Okay, Al Green is eight. Sam Cooke is seven. Otis Redding is six. I, I, this is what I'm saying. Like, but here's where it starts to get really, it starts to go wild. Don't come for me, my white friends. Don't come for me about what I'm about to say next. Frank Sinatra is five. No. Right. Okay, Nat King Cole is four. I love me some Nat King Cole. It's Christmas time. I'm playing it, but he is not a better singer than Luther Vandross. I'm sorry. Absolutely not. Objectively, absolutely. Okay, not. and I love me some Michael Jackson, but he is not number three. George Michael is number two. Love me some George Michael. He's not number two. And Freddie Mercury is number one. No shade. Love me some Freddie Mercury. Yeah. Love me okay. some Freddie. Yeah. Very talented Freddie. vocalist. Yeah, he'll fade a lot of people for sure. But damn, Luther is 10? Luther is 10. Uh, you know, I, I, I yeah, it, for me, it's the songs with Luther. I appreciate his voice. I appreciate all the abilities. He doesn't have a lot of songs that I enjoy. But Well, and I, I could quibble with that, but I'm not going to fight you on that here. I would also like to point out that they put Elvis at 11. So they have Elvis Presley and Luther Vandross back to back in terms of vocal quality my head okay i don't want to upset people but like i'm gonna move off of this i promise this isn't like a music criticism podcast i don't know it could be <laughs> um but thank you for that jayhan i'm gonna move on to the rest of this queue but thank you and thank you for validating thank you very much all right you're up tom go ahead and unmute yourself tom when you get a moment can you hear me now yeah, yeah sorry, there you go. Working. what's going on of course just as i'm about to go up somebody calls uh all right. Sorry, I get a little starstruck when uh, I get on these calls. So We're all friends here, Tom. Take I, your time. I wrote down my uh, points. Most of them were actually uh, fittingly in response to Brian. Like, for whatever reason, you guys brought up all the stuff I wanted to ask or bring up. Um, okay, so the first one was uh, you were nice enough to give us a follow-up with Andrew Sullivan. Are you going to give us a follow-up with Glenn Lowry? How do you mean a follow-up? Like the second episode, um, I've been a long-time follower of Glenn back when he was on Blogging Heads, like in 2014. So I'm a subscriber to his Substack and your Patreon. Mm-hmm. And as much as I like Glenn, I felt like there were a couple points you really could have hammered him on, but you kind of like let your foot up off the gas. <laughs> and I'm telling you, like his Substack made all kinds of noise about like one point you got wrong. <laughs> Oh, the the black women graduate. Yeah, and I, like I was like the only person in his Substack that was arguing with these people, and that also goes to my second point. I one hundred percent agree that a lot of the times, you know, on social media, lefties kind of like lose their shit. Excuse my language when we talk oh, to people on fine. the right, and you know, Thomas Chatterton Williams fans may be much more nice, but uh, <laughs> I don't think Glenn's fans were as nice. 
you know, they are definitely very exclusionary. They were like, you know, calling you a Marxist and a socialist. And well, what's wrong with that? Yeah. Yeah, and, you know, <laughs> just like I mean, these people think literally there are comments that talk about Mark Zuckerberg being a socialist, and that's why he steals our data. It didn't make any sense to me. Mm-hmm. That's I mean, I can't I can't cure can't cure stupid. Yeah. <laughs> well, look, I I um so the reality with the, the regardless of whether or not, I do think that there are some misrepresented that statistic is about um, black women outperforming black men more than any other women female group outperforms the men, men of their own race but it is also true that for example um, black immigrants outpace every, anybody else in terms of degree attainment in the United States right there's many different kind of stats you can pull on to prove the same point that you can't make these broad claims about valuing education moreover I don't you know personal experience only goes so far but it's completely no one talks about the value of education the way that black people do because of how constrained we have been in our choices and opportunities over time it's almost like a pathological insistence the only difference between black americans and i think some immigrant groups is i've noticed some really good hardcore branding um and the way that immigrants talk about their parents and their experiences and everyone has a story about how so-and-so came over with five dollars in their pockets even if they were you know an intellectual engineer or a doctor or whatever everyone seems to have had five dollars in their pockets and i don't mean to denigrate those stories but as a non-immigrant group, we don't talk that way. And when we talk about coming up from slavery or the great migration or, you know, my, my mother just got a bunch of re- pictures, um, a pictures like a refinished and framed in the house. And one is of her grandfather who is not old. My, my family is very young because my grandmother had my mom as a teenager. So my grand, my great grandfather is about the age of a lot of your grandfathers probably. And picture of him as a bricklayer, you know, in Cleveland working in really terrible looking conditions and mom talking about how proud he was to be able to buy the house that my great uncle now still lives in, in Cleveland, which is in a terrible neighborhood now because of the way that the urban decline has happened, but how proud he was of that salary and how proud he was of that house. And that kind of narrative doesn't get foregrounded for black Americans, the way that the kind of immigrant tale gets told over and over again. And I think it allows us, it allows people to pretend like we don't have that same scrappy, um, you know, bootstrapping conservative, frankly, ideology in our own community. And when I was in Cleveland covering the Nina Turner race and um, attended this big kind of mega church service where both candidates were speaking, what was so interesting is that the the guest preacher for the day was one of these young, this young white guy, you know, like maybe 40-ish with tattoos, kind of fit. He was a runner, good looking kind of guy, you know, cool pastor kind of situation. And his whole sermon was about personal responsibility. And this black audience ate it up. They loved it. So when I hear stuff about how black Americans don't care about education, they don't care about personal responsibility. I'm like, I don't know what planet you live on. It's all Bill Cosby. It's all of that stuff, nonstop, all day. And the idea that that is a, is a cultural failure in his parlance, as opposed to systemic failure is completely belied by the extremity with which the culture really does self-blame um, for its own failures, for its, for its own, for the, for the disparities that exist. So um, with respect to whether or not there'd be a follow-up, I'd be, I'd love to talk to him again. I, I found him to be a lovely um, and patient conversationalist. Um, and we think it was a very productive conversation. There's some others I want to get in there first. I know that uh, Nathan Robinson also had a conversation with 
Glenn Lowry, that was very good and productive. So people can go over there and listen to that at Current Affairs Podcast if they're interested in hearing more. And I also um, plan to do a in-person conversation with him at Brown in April. Uh, I know that's a long ways off, but I'm sure that will go up on the internet somewhere. And I plan to reach out to John McMorder soon, who is, you know, obviously in this very similar vein, and have a conversation with him. Nathan Robinson also just talked to John McWhorter. Um, and so I, I think that there will be more conversations like this coming down the pike, even if I don't return to Glenn Lowry specifically before I get to some of these others. Hmm, that's nice. Um, Daniel Besner also had a conversation with uh, Glenn Lowry, just to throw that in there if anybody's interested. I think it was on his podcast like a month back. Um, all right. And then the... The one or two other points. I'll try and make this as quick as possible. Sorry, I don't want to eat up all your time. Sure. Um, on the coalition building, uh, like, I mean, I work in construction, so I'm really in no position myself to do any coalition building. Um, but as somebody who works in politics and communications, generally, what have you had an easier time doing? getting kind of right of center converts over or like the undecideds or really going out there and getting like the young to, you know, kind of join our team, so to say. Well, the young are all already on board. The young are to my left. The young are, you know, it's lying down in front of Joe Manchin's uh, Maserati and <laughs> paddling up to his houseboat and um, blowing up pipelines and stuff. So, you know, to me, the hardest, the hardest folks to get are people who have kind of institutional reasons not to get it, meaning they are not just liberals because there's plenty of liberals who are just regular people who identify with the Democratic Party because what else is there? You know, and I don't mean that in a you know kind of patronizing way. People are busy. They have things to do. And most people don't have time to spend 10 hours a day scrolling the Twitter like I do and reading every news story that comes down the transom. So it is what it is. But like. For example, to go back to that experience I had in um, that mega church, you know, I, I walked around randomly just picking people to talk to, to interview about how they felt about the respective candidates. And the one discussion that really stood out was with a woman who was undecided, but was kind of leaning toward um, Chantel Brown because her, her uh, daughter was in the same prayer, prayer circle, or she was in the same prayer circle as Chantel's grandmother or something like that. Like they had a social relationship, even though she said she had voted for Bernie Sanders in the primary and liked what Nina Turner stood for. And I talked to her for like literally three minutes. She's saying, yeah, I appreciate that concern. Obviously, I understand respecting an interpersonal relationship and you hope that Chantel has the same values that this woman that you know and trust does. At the same time, here are the issues that are on the table. And I think that's just a matter of deciding whether or not these things are important to you. And she's like, you know what? Thank you for talking to me about it. Very few people actually just will sit down and be willing to have a conversation without you no know, judgment or really trying to make a pitch. And when you lay it out like that, I think I will vote for Nina Turner. I was like, okay, great. Sorry, I wasn't trying to convince you, but that's how the conversation went. And I think there were a lot of people who you might call them liberal, you might call them you know, not yet on our team in quotation marks, but really there are no substantive conversations happening for anybody anywhere. You know what it's like when you turn on the TV screen. And sometimes I know it sounds like I'm overstating the power of rhetoric and the power of words to change people's minds. But when people, most people are so untouched by it. Some people, you know, we haven't even tried. People are not accessed in the least. And when I encounter that in the real world, it gives me a lot of 
hope. It doesn't make me upset at people that they don't know or they haven't, you know, engaged these ideas necessarily. It gives me a lot of hope because it says these are people who are basically raw, you know, and are just really interested in craving people to take them seriously politically and engage with them substantively. On the other side, there were a lot of people that I went up to because um, I was trying to talk to people about why they supported Chantel. And so I was going up to people with Chantel stickers and buttons and T-shirts on. And to a T, all of those people were like, oh, I'm not even from Cleveland. I came in from so-and-so. I'm with this organization that's decided to support her. And basically they were paid. I mean, like they, they were part of the Democratic Party machine. They worked in politics and they had an investment in supporting Chantel, not because of what she believed in, but because who she was. And she was the candidate that was chosen to defeat Nina Turner. Right. So that's the hardest person to flip, the literal establishment Democrat. And those people should be none of our business and we shouldn't, you know, that's a losing battle. Now, I don't think we can ignore those people because we have to make sure that we are crafting messages to get around them because all of those people are also Joanne Reeds and Don Lemons and Jake Tappers and they're in control of the broader media message that goes out into the world. So we have to kind of bulletproof our messaging with the knowledge that those are those people are the intermediaries between us and the grandmother in the pew who eventually decided she was going to vote for Nina Turner. Right. But I, you know, people say, don't bother with a hardcore Trump voter. Don't you know, bother with a hardcore right winger. Yes. Also don't bother with the hardcore uh, dim who is literally paid to be a dim, but that doesn't mean there are not a lot of other people, especially working class people, because you can make those class arguments that really resonate. People need Medicare for all people who need a $15 minimum wage because they're working below that currently, which is by the way, I think 38% of black people would get a raise if we move to a $15 minimum wage, right? Those are easy arguments to make and that's where we should be focused. All right. And can I do one more point? Sure. Very, very quickly. Yeah. I'm sorry, Melissa, Dave. I'm sorry, guys. I will do this as fast as possible. Uh, Okay. So the only other response I had was to the lockdown Mm -hmm. point that was brought up. And like, as someone who only recently kind of got politicized myself, I would say like the, um, not the left left, but you know, like the establishment left. Mm -hmm. I guess I understand why there's so much like hysteria over Joe Biden, like, you know, floating potential lockdowns and things like that and COVID mandates, because at least during 2020, um, when I compare my tax returns, I saw a fifteen and a half thousand dollar reduction in my income. Now, I work in construction. I don't have the ability to work from Zoom. If I, mm. you know, look, if I could control a backhoe with a video game controller from home, I would do it. But, um, it, you know, and like I still haven't gotten my third stimulus check. I mean, there's just so much basic functions in the government that just don't work. And when I am, at least I probably shouldn't be getting my politics from online, but when I am online, it's really only you and a handful of other people who are talking about this, but even in the broader kind of progressive and leftist left, I I don't personally notice a lot of talk about just the absolute like just how much the COVID lockdown really affected genuinely working class people. And I'm just not to like pat myself on the back. I, you know, I, I have this job because I fucked up in college and a bunch of other life circumstances happened. But um, yeah, I don't really know what point I'm making. I guess I'm just venting. All no, right, I'll hang on. I know. I appreciate that. And thank you for that, Tom. And look, I, I will fully admit that I feel uncomfortable being in the position to be, you know, as frankly elite <laughs> as I am being the one that's the interlocutor to make that case. But it is frustrating from my perspective as well that 
I don't hear it more. And I'm, I'm making this like, I'm making somebody else's case all the time. Right. You know, I know that it's not my own story, but it does feel to me deeply frustrating that everyone's pretending like basically the lockdown didn't happen. And then also everything's fine. Now I know Astra Taylor and people at the debt collective have reported that they have heard explicitly from the Biden campaign, that part of why they are unwilling to continue to extend student debt relief is because they're trying to wrap up all COVID era programs going into 2022 because the evidence of those programs extending into 2022 is evidence that the COVID crisis hasn't been quote unquote managed or resolved. And they want to be able to claim rhetorically that it's over and in the past as they go into midterms, even if that means plunging all of their constituents, you know, the 44 million Americans who have student debt into a position where they have to start paying $300,000, $2,000 a month on top of their already constrained financial situation that they're in because of the lockdown, to your point. You know, and again, tiniest violin in the world for me. But, you know, I was unemployed for most of last year, (laughs) you know, after the campaign ended. And I went through the process of applying for unemployment benefits and they never came. I, I was never able to figure it out. They sent me a card and the card was not was never functional. I still get emails from them, but not, a dime never came through. You know, the I was on the phone hours a day and I was someone who was lucky enough not to be in such constraints that I needed the money immediately in my bank account. But I will tell you, by about a month before this podcast's revenues first came in, I, <laughs> I was down to my last uh, couple of, you know, shekels, you know. So I, you know, it is, if I, if I know that I felt any squeeze, you know, in a relatively privileged position, it is very dispiriting to me to turn on the TV and hear nobody mention the fact that this is an ongoing economic crisis. Um, And I don't know what to do about that. I think that anybody who is willing to vocalize that would get a lot of political uh, support. And I think there are a lot of opportunities for folks to give voice to deeply felt pain in the same way that, frankly, no one likes to hear this, but Donald Trump was able to weaponize the fact that people had not recovered from the 2008 crisis. Everyone had to pretend that everything was okay and good because Obama was the one who oversaw it, even though all of those TARP funds were never dispersed and homeowners were never bailed out the way that the banks were bailed out. And he was able to capitalize on that kind of populist, anti-establishment, anti-government fervor because people were disappointed that the government had the power to help them and declined to. And we're in that same position going forward. So Democrats can tell the truth about themselves and the management of this crisis and say, we need to do better than even the Biden administration has done. Or it could pretend that Biden is hunky-dory and good and everything is perfect and sanguine and leave it to some Tom Cotton-esque or Dr. Oz-esque figure to point out the obvious, that people are still hurting. And who do you think the average voter is going to listen to? I know from even my perspective, if I were a conservative, I would be arguing Donald Trump paused your loans. Joe Biden started them back up again. And it's 100% true. That's just the truth. And if jo- if Joe Biden, if jo- if Donald Trump hadn't paused those loans last year, let me tell you, that this podcast wouldn't exist. Bad Faith Podcast wouldn't exist because I wouldn't have been able to go, you know, six months without chilling and going and getting some other kind of job because I would have had to pay an additional two. $2,300 a month in loans, which would have dra- drained my savings almost immediately. Do you know what I mean? So like th- th- these are the real world circumstances to your point. Um, and I think that if, if the Democrats don't latch onto them and like ex- not exploit them, but, you know, speak to them meaningfully, someone else will and they won't be wrong. All right. I'm very excited to hear from Melissa because I got to say, I love you guys and I love Colin, 
And I don't want to presume anybody's pronouns. There's a little bit of a sausage fest around here. <laughs> How are you doing, Melissa? I'm great. And sausage fest is a term that had flashed through my mind. Also. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you. Thank you for being here, for joining. Please bring three of your girlfriends next time. <laughs> okay, sure thing. Can we talk about Julian Assange? Absolutely. You have the floor. Uh, well, I guess I just want to rant. I am. I have just been so dismayed by the mainstream media completely ignoring him and his plight. I mean, it's it's like um, Donald Trump saying, "I love WikiLeaks." Made the entire Democratic Party completely abandon their principles of freedom of the press. Because um, I, I gave Biden way too much credit. I assumed that he would come in and, you know, rely on Obama's judgment, which was that his administration wouldn't prosecute Julian Assange because that would also, you know, criminalize the New York Times. Mm-hmm. And so now the only people who are talking about Julian Assange are, you know, the lefty media, rising breaking points, democracy now. And yeah, <sighs> yeah, no. I, so you're entirely right. It's deeply frustrating. And frankly, you know, I'm sure they won't mind me saying this. I was talking to the ladies with whom I just did that uh, free Donzinger stream the other night. And we were like, that was fabulous. I, I tuned in the whole time. Well, thank that- you. You guys need to do that more often. Well, this is the point. We were we were saying, who's next? I mean, we were kind of joking. Oh, we got Donziger free, so who's next? You know, and the obvious <laughs> answer is Julian Assange. So, hopefully, we'll be combining our efforts yeah. to you know raise attention in that way going forward. Again, I mean, look, we we did an, an Assange episode back in the spring, I believe. I think around maybe uh, April, uh, March, April, and I, it was around the time. Uh, back maybe no, it was back back in January maybe that there were a series of protests going on outside of the British Embassy here in um, DC that I participated in. But honestly, it's 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 branded as such a fringe um, concern by an unexpectedly large swath of the media. Like sometimes you would expect even Vox and some of those kinds of places will get on board with some stuff about Medicare for all stuff that we consider to be in our wheelhouse. But Assange seems to be so out of the realm of public discourse that even someone like AOC, who I know people have their criticisms of, I've made plenty of criticisms of, but who I expect to kind of get behind some baseline progressive issues, you know, in the middle of all of, it was in the middle of all the force of vote stuff. So it kind of got lost. But in that interview she did with Jeremy Scahill, he someone who is very invested in this issue and is a total intelligence guy asked her what she felt about Julian Assange. And she said something like, um, I don't know. I have concerns. I don't know that I should weigh in. She kind of completely sidestepped the issue and and he let her get away with it. I mean, I should pull up a clip. Um, Somebody should, I don't know. I'll, I'll have it maybe ready to go next time, but you know, we didn't, there wasn't a lot of bandwidth to get on her about that because we were all mad about all the force the vote answers. But 
I think she. I think I saw Glenn maybe tweet today that she gave it another slump, somewhat more forceful, but still kind of wishy-washy answer today. And so I do think it's incumbent on us to continue to pressure, particularly these left electeds, to be more vocal. Because even even the good ones, like even <laughs> even my faves, like you know Rashida and Ilhan, I think haven't been as vocal as they as they could have been. Maybe this moment. Um, with you know the UK court ruling that Assange can be extradited to the US is a moment that will be galvanizing in this regard. So know that the lefty ladies that you saw on the Donziger panel are definitely on the case and hopefully we can put something together like that again soon. Uh, we're, <laughs> the three of us are in DC, me, Marianne, and um, Crystal, but we've got to make sure we get Katie back, <laughs> Katie back in DC so we can do something like that again soon. Yeah. It was great. The The chemistry was fabulous between the four of you. Thank you. It was, a, it was a lot of fun. It felt powerful. I mean, you know how these spaces can be speaking of sausage fest. And sorry, sorry, <laughs> gentlemen, I don't mean to disparage you, but, you know, Crystal is such a professional, you know, and Katie is so funny. And Marianne has yeah. that gravitas and that warmth and that kind of moral grounding that is sometimes so lacking on the left. It really did feel like there was something special there. And I, I really do hope that we're going to do it again soon. Yeah. Thank you so much for that, Melissa. And I, I and hope to see you back here in the chat soon. Okay. I'll, I'll work on the friend. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you for saving <laughs> <Thank> us all. <laughs> Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Okay, David, you're up next. And I'm going to run through. Okay. I'm going to cut it off at Tucker because um, I have a date at 630. <laughs> I have to shower. <laughs> um, so we can keep these next ones brief and Tucker will be the end of the line. Uh, let's hear from you, David. Hi there. Um, long-time listener since uh, Virgil and Ben and you have been doing the podcast. Um, sorry, a little nervous. Um, so oh, Go ahead. Thank you, David. Yeah. Um, so uh, I'm a critical care nurse, um, and I've just like been trying to learn more about politics and become more politically active. Um, and because I realize that politics affects everything we do in our lives, and I try and relate that to the people in my social sphere. So there was a point that was made earlier about um, decriminalization of um, Medicaid or drugs and things of that nature. Mm -hmm. And I was having a discussion with one of my uh, nursing friends. And at the end of the conversation, we kind of boiled down to that. She felt like I was blaming doctors and nurses for the way we treat and criminalize um, um, like things like meth abuse and how we send police to uh, to, to deal with these kinds of issues as opposed to sending social workers, nurses, and doctors, because you agree that they're patients. My question is, how do you how do you tackle these things in daily conversation in which you can kind of get people to disarm? Because usually when we when you challenge those those uh, the way that people think and the way they've been raised, it causes mm. we know for a fact that it causes an amount of pain. It activates the amygdala in the brain and they don't want to talk about it. And I'm always trying to get around that. Mm. When we have these conversations that you have, um, we talk about how we kind of get to the point where organizing seems to be the answer to fixing a lot of these issues. So I'm always wondering, who should I be following? What should I be looking for? How should I be framing these conversations so that I can kind of get around those walls and have a conversation that allows us to talk about class and how we can actually imagine our system is different so that we can kind of address these issues? That's a big question, David. I'm curious. So you, what, what is her response? I just want to make sure I understand what the tension point between mm -hmm. you two is. You're, you, those are both nurses? 
And when you say things like we should, you know, not respond to, you know, addiction with further criminalization, that we should have, um, you know, needle exchanges and, you know, Medicare for all should cover opioid addiction and all these other kinds of things. Her response is what? Well, and her response is is that so not just her, also the nurses that I work with I'm in Northern California, which is, tends to be rather conservative. And the common, the common mm-hmm. refrain that I hear when, when we're sitting out or sitting down after report or before report is the, some of the nurses are frustrated, like, oh, we have another meth addict in this room, in that room, and, and my tax dollars are going to pay for them because, you know, it's not like they have insurance and they go back out there. And then I always bring up the point, yeah. That's a good point that our tax dollars are paying for that and we're having to give our best care just to get these people well, just to send them back out in the community, just for them to come back in the ER a few days later with the same problem. But you, we're not what you do, what they don't want to discuss is the fact that this particular area voted down um, cl- uh, opening new um, safe injection sites in this area. And it's like, do, do you not see how those two things correlate? And I guess I feel ill-equipped to make the argument or make or have the conversation, not because I, I know we need to be trying to avoid debate and having uh, open conversations. I feel ill-equipped to make the conversation or have the conversation that would get them to be even open to the idea. I don't know how to set them. Well, David, you sound like you're making it, you're making a compelling case to me. I mean, what do they say when you point out that there were the policy interventions that could have helped in that revolving door? Well, like one person that I was very recently able to kind of connect with on racial issues, um, she usually points out that, oh, you're a Democrat. And I'm like, no, not actually. I'm uh, totally not that at all because I don't like what the Democrats do. So I wouldn't necessarily mm-hmm. say that I'm a Democrat. Did I, Do I vote for Democrats typically? Well, yeah, because that's kind of what we've been raised to do. It's like, oh, you can't vote for the Republicans. And it's like, well, if they were offering a policy that was useful, then yeah, I could actually envision a world of voting that way. But I don't think you, this nurse that I was talking to, who I actually connected with the other day, I don't think she could ever imagine not voting Republican because voting Republican has always benefited her. She has three houses where I can't afford to buy one. So it's like you're fighting against all of that as Mm -hmm. well, that background as well. Yeah. Well, that's the thing. I mean, I, 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 when I encounter an affluent person who's conservative, that's another one of those spaces where it's like, I'm not going to spend my energy here because there are very good reasons to vote conservative if you are affluent. Um, the good thing right. for the left is, I mean, not good, obviously, but the good thing for the left politically is that very few people are affluent, so that doesn't hurt us in, the, in that way, right? And, you know, what we're talking about, what I was talking about with Ian Haney Lopez from Monday's right. episode is how to get white people, you know, working class white people, instead of all of the messaging that says you're white, so you should vote for the wages of whiteness and vote for Trump and white people vote for white Trump, white people are conservative, white people, da, 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 to try to disentangle that allegiance and say, you know, Trump isn't the first white president. He's the first affluent president. If you're not affluent, you should consider whether or not you should join a different coalition, right? And I, 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 I'm hesitating okay. to give you advice because I got to say, I have a friend in the healthcare industry who I have some tension with <laughs> because despite the fact that she identifies as a Democrat and care, she's a gynecologist and so she is deeply invested in kind of women's health and abortion access, Every other kind of part of her politics is pretty socially conservative. And I think but for abortion, she might actually just identify as a Republican. And I hear her as she's gotten more conservative since we were friends in college. 
And I, I, to be honest with you, (laughs) I don't touch it with a 10 foot pole because I know like what has, what has um, made her conservative. And it's, it's making the same kind of observations that your nurses have made. And she's frustrated by, you know, low income patients who don't take their medication on time and end up filling the ER and all of this kind of rhetoric. And she, it's very difficult to get her to have the insight to realize that that's a systemic problem and not an individual failure. And to be honest, I see her like twice a year and it's on usually on some long car ride somewhere where I don't really want to get into it with her <laughs> to have a retreat with friends that I'm just <laughs> trying to be nice. And so we can get on with our 10 year reunion or whatever it is. And that's on me. I'm sorry. Like I do this all day. I don't necessarily want to do it in my friend groups, but it's very difficult to get people to disentangle what is a, systemic problem from a personal one. But one thing I think you can do is ask people questions. So what, what would you, what do you see as a solution to this? I, I agree with you that it's frustrating that the people we treat end up right back here and a lot of expenses going to it. My solution to this is X. What's your solution to it? Because okay. very, very often people are unwilling to follow their own logic to the conclusion, which is people should just be dying on the streets. No one, no one wants to say that, right? Like they'll make arguments right. that will lead to that. Like obviously, if you're just mad and you don't want to treat these people and you hate them, then the result is they'll die on the streets. But our moral, our collective kind of national morality prevents people from saying that kind of thing out loud. So if you kind of push them to the logical ends of their politics, oftentimes they'll realize, okay, well, I don't actually have any answers. I'm complaining, and you agree with me that this is a problem. So maybe I should open myself up to your solution. Okay, I can try that. I can yeah, try let's that. see. I, look, I I'm no expert here. I'm I'm listening to you because I'm very curious to see the strategies that you've been able to deploy because you're much more knowledgeable about what's going on in your social context. So, please do come back and let us know how that goes, and maybe even bring her okay. with you if she would be willing. I would do my best. And I would do my best. We can all have the conversation together. Home. Yeah, thank you for I that, David. Thank and you. good luck out there. Thanks. Bye bye. All right. Uh, doctor, where'd he go? It just, doctor, doctor, unmute yourself. Uh, could you hear me? Yes, I can Uh, hear you. Good evening. Go ahead. Um, so I have two, two questions or two points. Um, first is it seems as, uh, since, you know, Bernie Sanders, you know, cowardly stepped down from the presidential campaign, um, earlier last year. And after all the forced to vote, um, it seems as if that some of the prominent political commentators that consider themselves progressives or, or leftist center or leftist um, have been, um, you know, in the midst of infighting, um, and mm-hmm. and I'm concerned that that. There's no way. Okay, so let me rephrase it. Since Bernie Sanders and the Justice Democrats are refusing to be uh, like a hostile force against the uh, political establishment and not using all levels of the um, all leverages they have to extract concessions uh, policy-wise, that I think it, I felt as if it's incumbent upon uh, the political commentators um, as well as the electorate to uh, band together to um, you know do anything, do something. But ever since, you know, Bernie Sanders stepped down, stepping down, forced to vote, and as, as well as other uh, moments in the past year, 
selling for use power that there's been a lot of um conflict and in my view it seems like a lot plenty of people are being childish um and losing the big picture um that you know mm-hmm. if the people that we elected to um pass legislation on behalf of us are not doing what they're supposed to do then it's incumbent upon us to push them but you know mm-hmm. it seems people are more concerned about you know their own perfect ideology as opposed to the principles that um, all connect us do you think it's possible that we actually come in unison um to um Pass substantive policies on a on a federal level. Um, that's one. Uh, the second point is a uh, question. Well, let me go ahead and answer that one, so I don't I don't forget it, and I'll let you answer, ask the second one if that's okay. Uh, of course, I think it's possible, and in fact, I think that despite being kind of at the fulcrum of some of this division in the left, it's in some ways not as divided as it can feel. I think that it is still true that. Everyone on the left agrees about, you know, the Kellogg strike. Everyone on the left agrees about Stephen Donziger. Everyone on the left is constantly uniting around certain things, even if there's still this debate me bro culture that has certain figures at each other's necks from time to time. I think that sometimes I resist the idea that force of vote was just kind of divisive in the same way that some of these interpersonal things between various hosts, I think, are quote unquote divisive, because I do think that force the vote was a litmus test of sorts. It really showcased that some members of the left are willing to um, use available leverage and some members of the left are more interested in preserving the personal integrity of various elected officials for various reasons, some good faith reasons, some reasons that are rooted in access, some reasons, some, some because they sincerely believe that's just the best way forward and that we just have to get enough elected officials into office and then make our move, you know, that at some point in the future, a view that reasonable minds can have, but I very much disagree with. And so I think that we are in the process right now. I think that I have, I can say, I don't want to say too much, but I have reason to believe that the reason that elected officials didn't get on board with force of vote was less because they thought it through and thought it was a bad idea. And more because they really, things were moving quickly. They had no idea what was going on. They heard it, they heard it first about, heard about it first in an antagonistic way. They got in their feelings and they chose not to pay attention to it till it was too late. And I think that some of them are reevaluating and reconsidering and reaching out and trying to form ties with members of left media in a move that I think will ultimately bring us together and make elected leftists stronger as well. And I look forward to helping to support that effort. And building bridges with even those who I have been antagonistic with in the past over force of vote and other issues, because I think it's an absolute necessity to put the greater good before any interpersonal disputes. And I tweeted this recently and people felt some kind of way about it. But like I wake up every day and see a thousand dumb things on the Internet that I disagree with and think half these people are foolish and idiotic. And I keep those thoughts to myself because it's not worth it. Because I think ultimately they're doing the Lord's work. They're the only people out there that are advancing any of these core basic ideas. And I'm happy that they're doing it, even if I quibble with them here and there about something or other. And I think everyone needs to keep that mentality a little bit. I'm not perfect. I pick my fights. I'm not saying that I don't scrap it up sometimes. But I think all of us could do better just to consider what the bigger goal is here. That's all. Um, What's your second question, doctor? Well, just a quick little response to that. Um, You're 
I noticed I've been listening to it a while, and I noticed you are way more optimistic than I am, and I appreciate that optimism because you know, you know, um, I honestly, based on what I've seen the last two three years, I don't think anything's going to change before I die. I hope I hope otherwise though. But um, the second question is uh, is real quick. You mentioned some time ago in uh, one of your podcast uh, episodes that you were going to bring on, I remember over the, uh, the Justice Democrats, but I yet to see it. Uh, what happened? Yeah, they canceled on me. They canceled on me, um, but hopefully they will change their mind. We've been in contact and we'll be able to schedule something else going forward. But yeah, they fully just canceled on me the day before. <laughs> uh, what, did they give a particular reason or you have to keep that sensitive? That sensitive um, you know, people have their reasons, but they are open to doing it again. And so I want to give them that chance and, and take that desire in good faith. You know, I, I believe them until I have reason not to believe them that they are really wanting to have an open conversation. Uh, and so we're, we're working on, we've been in contact even just this past week about some of this Donzinger stuff and hopefully they'll be on again soon. If not by the end of the year, then by the end of January. Okay. One last question. I'm sorry. Do you actually think that the uh, Justice Democrats will ever will ever actually um, vote as a block to um, block legislation uh, in order to you know extract con- uh, policy concessions? I think some of them are open to it. If there are enough of them to actually have an effective block, given what the margins are, that's a different question. My belief is, like I said, that some of them didn't pick up force the vote, not because they thought it through and were ideologically proposed, were opposed because they honestly, guys, I don't want to, I don't want to um, make you more depressed, but there's some optimism in this too. No one knows what they're doing. Like no one's coming to save you. <laughs> like these are just human beings who got elected because of their, you know, charisma or their okay, organizing or that's, whatever it is. That's way too charitable. I mean, I not saying no, no. I, I'm telling you, doctor, they don't know what they're doing. That is not me being charitable. That's me actually criticizing them. They don't know, like, they don't have a clue. They're just humans. They're not some Machiavellian politicos who have been in Washington, especially these these young new ones. They they're they're reading books furiously, trying to figure out what the the rule the house rules are, and relying on young, relatively inexperienced staff members because they're trying to find staff members that share their politics. But those people don't have as much experience on the hill. No one, no one, they're they're figuring it out, and that is not that is not an excuse, right? That's not me saying that we shouldn't be upset with them because I think that if if Jimmy Dore figured out for us the vote then they should have been able to figure it out and look past all of the hand-wringing and emotionality and personal attacks and done what the right thing was. I obviously believe that to be true. Nobody was a more forceful advocate for force of vote, I would argue, than I was and took some pretty serious hits over it that I don't regret in the least. But the reality is, I cannot say more than this, and I'm going to have to move to the next caller, but the reality is I know now from experience that what I thought was resistance and an ideological opposition and cowardliness is at least in the case of one representative ignorance they really didn't know and that's that's frustrating on a whole other level but it is i think helpful to understand that sometimes these people honestly there's no game book there's no strategy sessions there's no federalist society there's no cap coming up with schemes for the left there's just us 
you know, teams for the left. There's just, um, so I'm going to go ahead and take Daniel, but thank you so much for that, doctor. We got to move through. I don't know why you guys aren't respecting that I have to be showered and looking cute by 630 when my date comes to pick me up. Like really trying to hold a girl back here. What's going on, Daniel? <laughs> Hello. Hi, Daniel. Hey. I can hear okay. you. Go ahead. Um, so I've been wanting to talk to you for a long time. Uh, sorry, I've never done this before. Um, no, we're pretty new here. Welcome. But, uh, um, so like, well, first off, I just want to say like, I think like everything you've been doing from like a race perspective is like the best I've heard. And so like, I'm really happy to hear it. What I feel like is missing sometimes Mm -hmm. is Mm -hmm. the perspective from a black that is lower class or i mean i don't mean like lower class but like uh, not from the same college the same uh mm-hmm. world that you come from or whatever mm-hmm. so like well so that's where everything that i'm about to say to you comes from um okay but it's you know and like like i did like uh what's the guy uh bertrand or uh when you were talking Richard Cooper. Uh, I like mm-hmm. I liked a lot of what he said because he was somebody that I saw myself more in. Um, mm-hmm. but I mean, so so like basically, I'm gonna go to like where where I think like Democrats or some of this stuff where like I agree a hundred percent, but where I think like you lose people a lot of times is like when we start talking about like the student debt thing or whatever. I mean, like I don't know anybody mm-hmm. that went to college. Well, no, that's wrong. I do know one person that went to college. And it was funded by somebody I know that's in federal prison. But I mean, other mm-hmm. than that, like nobody I know goes to college. Now, I don't have a problem with student debt, but I, I, but I mean, I think you also have to backstop it with like unemployment and work programs and things like that. Because for the rest of us, I mean, people like me, I mean, I was a felon at 18. You know, you're, you're right mm-hmm. out the gate. You're uh, you're disqualified from a lot of jobs and a lot of other things. So like, okay, so I now do construction and I mean, make a better living than a lot of college people in construction. But I mean, like when you start talking about Mm -hmm. things like uh, student debt, a lot of people say, well, you know, I make this much money right now, but then when the economy falls, I mean, I've had, I've had years where I've made more money than I've ever thought. And I've had years where, where I don't even make a quarter of that money through whatever. So I, I mean, like the fact that we have an unemployment system that, that uh, will pay me 400 or something dollars a week when that's not even, I mean, a fraction of what I'm used to making. Like I, it, I, I think in order to like get people on board with student debt, I mean like blue collar people or other people on board with student debt, you also need to backstop it with things that will apply to them in their lives because like, what is it like 65% or something like that of us that are not, uh, I mean, that don't go to college, you know, that's the bulk of us that don't. So you, mm-hmm. you need to backstop the one program with something else. And then like the same thing, I mean, I'm just bringing up things I heard today, but like the drug crime thing, like when people talk about drug crime, the first thing they want to start talking about is marijuana possession and whatever, which is, I mean, fine. But I mean, what about the other half of this? That I mean, there's a drug economy if you live 
you know, in a black neighborhood or a poor neighborhood or whatever. And there's a lot of people that's in there for other cases that whatever that I'm not saying that absolves people of things or whatever, but I mean like your ability to want to smoke weed and want to take it off of the schedule because you want to smoke weed doesn't do anything for the cocaine disparity or all the people that I know that's in there for twenties and thirties, uh, for, for traffic or, you know, trafficking or whatever. So like we end up talking about the pieces. I, I feel like we end up talking about a lot of pieces that really, uh, uh, are emphasized on the white collar or, or the not, not what I'm from. And, and then it misses people like me. And so then you say, well, why, why am I not, uh, into whatever because like my life is the same i mean my life was the same under trump as it is under biden i mean like i mean you can Mm -hmm. say you can say uh look at how things have improved or whatever but i mean the the people that i know that were going to jail before uh biden i mean the people that were going to jail under obama are still there the people that went to jail mm-hmm. under Trump are still there. The people that are now going to jail under Biden are still there. So, like, it's all the same game to me. I mean. Yeah. No, I, I think that those are all in 100% correct and really incredible points. May I ask uh, what part of the country you're from, Daniel? Oh, uh, I mean, I live in Kansas City. I'm from, I mean, I grew up in Georgia uh, to like my 20s yeah just, to my, just, to just my 20s curiosity. and then yeah. i mean well so that's another point i want to say okay so like i'm 45 i've never voted for mm-hmm. a president i voted in two mm-hmm. primaries you can guess which of those two were <laughs> uh and whatever and the only person that ever spoke to me was bernie or mm-hmm. whatever i mean i'm somewhat disaffected with him and his position now now but i mean He's the only person that's ever spoken to me. But it, but the point is that he's the person that spoke to these uh, to these problems in a way that wasn't. I mean, I know that like black Dems or black elites or uh, what's uh, what, what's uh, Pascal called the misleadership class likes, mm-hmm, you know, mm-hmm. likes this other stuff. But I mean, like, that's not me. That's not me or the mm-hmm. people I know or the people that whatever. And I mean, at. I mean, I'm just saying I speak from somebody that grew up in a certain place, made my way out of that certain place uh, in the way that you would say that you're supposed to, you know, and have a pretty good life now. Mm -hmm. But I mean, that 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 is still not anything that's that's represented by the blacks that that Jim Clyburn, uh, Lewis. uh, George Reed, John no, Lewis, jo- mm-hmm. uh, Joanne Reed, mm-hmm. uh, Don Lemon, mm-hmm. whatever. Mm-hmm. I mean, uh, none of these people speak to anything that I think or believe in or whatever. And, you know, there's a C word I have for them that I won't say on here, but you, I mean, <laughs> so when you, uh, when you start talking about whatever and, and pulling people, I mean, I, like I hear you say a lot of times about, doing things and saying things from a communication standpoint, which makes a hundred percent sense to me. But the other half of that is Mm -hmm. that sometimes from a communication standpoint, you lose it. When you gain somebody, you lose somebody like the Southern strategy thing or whatever, Mm -hmm. uh, 
May, may, I ask, may I ask Daniel, do you feel like there was any difference between, it sounds like you supported Bernie in 2016 and 2020 voted for him in both primaries, but did you feel some of the left left analysis is that Bernie didn't do as well in 2020 because he got too woke and abandoned some of the kind of raw economic messaging from 2016. Did you feel any of that? I mean, I feel that 100%. And I feel that as, like I said, so I'm a union construction worker. Um, mm-hmm. And you could sell people on Bernie. I mean, I know, you know, we have we will have this conversation about Hillary and how terrible Hillary was and that she sold Bernie to some degree also. So, uh, I mean, you can bake that in into everything. But I mean, the other half of it is that the Bernie, the first version of Bernie. That was a. Uh, was the Bernie that spoke a lot more to me or people on my job. Well, to me and my segment of like the people I'm cool with. And, but then also to people like on my job site, it would be a whole lot easier to sell that Bernie to then to sell this last Bernie, because like you said, the woke thing. And I mean, again, as a, well, can I, I just want to drill down. Can you remember what it was that you first heard about Bernie or what first attracted you to him? And then can you also identify what it was specifically in the 2020 messages that you found or that your peers found to be off putting? Okay. Well, so, so the first Bernie, the first Bernie thing, I actually, I had no idea who Bernie was because I, you know, wasn't mm-hmm. politically active, wasn't whatever. Yeah. Um, Me either. I, I thought he, I couldn't tell the difference between him and Bernie Frank. <laughs> I actually heard, uh, I actually heard, uh, what was the the guy from uh, Baltimore uh, O'Malley or something? Uh, uh, I heard him. Martin O'Malley and liked some of the things he said because of like the union portion of it. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I found out <laughs> some of his race <laughs> uh, stuff and whatever, and wasn't into you know wasn't into him as much. Uh, but and then just sort of stumbled into Bernie, you know, and and basically just the things he said made sense you know and and but do you remember i'm just trying to get a sense of because if there's a critique that he moved away from his message in 2016 i want to know what the message in 2016 was that really resonated with people and if it's if it was different in 2020 i want to i want to talk about what it, he said in 2020 that was different so we can be specific I mean, I, you know what i mean and i, and I will admit that i don't well, I think... get to talk you know, I'm in my own bubble. I'm sitting here in D.C. And you're right. I do mostly liaise with people from my own class cohort. So I'm just really curious. I'm, I, I really want to know. There's no right or wrong answers. I want to know what your perception of things were in Kentucky or in Georgia, wherever you were at the time. Um, I mean, I think. Uh, well, I mean, I, I think the first the first portion of it. I, well, OK, let me say it a different. Way. I think the second portion, the the this last uh, attempt, I think mm-hmm. he played into, uh, like people say, like played into trying to make Dems happy or trying to be more modern. I mean, like the, uh, where initially he really was like drilling down on, on a, like working class people, working class people issues, working class people things the second time around things he said were a lot more tempered and were a lot more uh well, well what were some of the working class issues and working class things that resonated most with you in 2016 was it medicare for all was it a 15 dollar minimum wage was it some of the union I mean, um the pro labor legislation 
I mean, it would have been, I mean, the pro labor legislation was really originally what got me into it. And then, and then like the Medicare for all then, you know, and, and as I said, like that, if you look at it from, from an economic standpoint or from, from being economically disadvantaged, if you look at it from that perspective, I was like, man, everything this dude said makes sense. And then like, I remember, I remember the black women shouting him down uh, because he wasn't saying the, you know, uh, he wasn't saying what they wanted him to say or whatever. And I was thinking like he, everything mm-hmm. he's saying is what helps us, but like he didn't do it. He didn't do it in a pandering mm-hmm. way, which is what everybody is used to. And the second time around, I think he did everything mm-hmm. in a pandering way. And I can mean, you can you set examples? It's not that I disagree with you, but I do think that there are some cohorts at the left who really want to make this argument. But I, as someone who was observing it, what I observed was that, I mean, honestly, apart from the fact that Bernie, he did this in 2016 too, would basically list black, Latino, Asian, Native American, like he would say it like that at the beginning of a speech. Which he did again in 2016 as well. I can't recall any specific language. It's not like Bernie was on stage talking about intersectionality or the wages of whiteness or, you know, I'm not trying to disagree with you. I'm just really trying to get a sense of what it is that makes people feel like Bernie sounded different in 2020. Because to my ear, I just wasn't hearing it. And I don't know. I I mean, as you're saying it, I don't know. I don't know that there is. I don't know that he said things differently as much as just mm-hmm. it had a different feel to it or uh, you know that that it that the first time i felt like he was speaking to me or speaking to i mean like i didn't know who he was what he was about what whatever and everything he said really just like resonated with me and the second time around i felt like he wasn't talking as much to me i felt to me i felt like he was like parsing his language or is saying something different and i mean i can't tell you a specific reason why i'm just saying i i didn't Mm. feel the same belief in it that i did i mean obviously well i mean obviously the joe biden is my friend and whatever you know is uh, uh, like that stuff didn't help at all because i mean I, I don't yeah so i i agree i i think that part of what people observe is that he obviously had a sincere affinity for Joe Biden and, a, and a, there was active acrimony toward Hillary Clinton. Like he didn't like her. He was a, right. he was in your parlance. Uh, when is the ne- this next show going to be on Colin? Well, I'll see you next Tuesday. <laughs> like that, that was the feeling yeah. I feel like there was about Hillary Clinton. And so that manifested, he, his, the tone of his rhetoric was different. I think for that reason, he would really slam Hillary in debates. He would, he would, you know, paint her in no certain under in terms as a corporatist in a way that he didn't do to anyone really in the course of 2020. But that's, I think a little bit of a different thing. It's a valid criticism, but it's a little bit of a different idea that then that he like changed or softened his language to make it more woke. Well, but in, but in that, but in that sense, I think there was also, I mean, maybe, I mean, maybe it was because he didn't like, Hillary or whatever, but the going against Hillary as like a figure of establishment or a figure of whatever made him seem more like a working class champion. I mean, mm-hmm. I mean, mm-hmm. I guess I'm just saying like in this same context, if you were, if, if you were to say something about like Bernie Sanders 
and then you would say to say something to me about AOC, who AOC would actually be more similar to me in background or something probably, but I feel a lot less uh, uh, camaraderie or something with mm-hmm. an AOC than I felt with the Bernie, uh, Ber- the, the Bernie Sanders felt like he was speaking to me and mm-hmm. working class people and whatever. Mm-hmm. And an AOC feels to me like he's speaking more to a you or whatever. And I don't mean that as a, but mm-hmm. doing it, but no, I mean, no, as, no. As, a, as a as a college, I, whatever yeah. that like when I when Bernie spoke, I felt like I mean like as much as they advertise AOC as like your common bartender, such and such, mm-hmm. such such AOC doesn't seem like the person that I would be around. Whereas yeah. Bernie seemed like he would have been the guy. He he seemed like he could have been the the BA for my union or he would have been on yeah. the picket line with me or he would have been in uh something else you know that pertained to me and yeah. that was the part that uh, I mean I like I said I can't really put my finger on it and tell you like this is the thing but I mean yeah. there was a different feeling from one step to the other yeah. Well, Daniel, I, I have to I have to move on to this last caller, but I will say I really appreciate all your points and I don't I don't disagree with you at all on any of it. And I agree that um, I think you put it uh, that we have to have a backstop when we talk about some of the um, policy prescriptions like student debt cancellation that don't enter to the benefit of more working class people. I agree that we have to couple that with all the other things like making college public college free, making vocational programs free, um, you know, canceling medical debt, canceling certain kinds of consumer debt or paying off consumer debts um, and on and on and on down the line. Of course, housing is a human right. Um, and and I, as we were talking about the drug stuff, I pulled up, I think part of the problem here is that we were, when we were in a Bernie and- universe, there was a, there was a package of policies that kind of got referenced as a whole. And it did include legalizing marijuana within the first 100 days with executive action, vacating and expunging all past marijuana-related convictions, ensuring that revenue from legal marijuana is reinvested in communities hit hardest by the war on drugs, some of the points that you brought up. But now that Bernie's gone, there's a kind of picking and choosing from the platform, and student debt cancellation is being emphasized right now because it's one of the few things that Biden can do by executive order. But to your point, he can also um, do some of this drug policy by executive order, and I think you're I think you're right that we need to keep our eyes on the and people like myself need to be reminded by people like you not to drop those parts of the agenda that don't resonate with me personally. So I appreciate you spending so much time talking to me here and reminding me of that. And I hope you come back into the chat because if I didn't have a time constraint right now, I'd like to talk to you for much longer. Okay. And could I say one more thing real sure. quickly, just th- pertaining to what you just said, but I mean, and, and that like it, on the, on the carceral state or mm-hmm. prison thing, I mean, like the prison system eats off of us. Mm-hmm. I mean, you have Securitas, you have, you know, Western Union, all of these yeah. people. I'm sorry, I can't think of it, but uh, the people the that the feds mm-hmm. farm out their inmates to. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. All of this... <laughs> Sorry, my dog. <laughs> no uh, worries. All of this eats off of us. But I'm just saying, so at any point that you make a change in whatever, you also have to change the system in, in a way that helps us at the bottom because you can change things and whatever and make more 
uh, more upper class blacks and that's great for for upper class blacks and whatever but for those of us that are on the bottom or came from the bottom it still doesn't change our life at the bottom and that's all i'm really trying to say yeah yeah i hear you daniel and thank you for that grounding reminder i really do appreciate it thank you for your time um all right tucker you're the last one and i'm gonna i gotta say you gotta keep it keep it brief oops wait make the next speak wait make the next caller you're on, Tucker. Oh, hi. Earlier, you just brought up Tom Cotton, and that made me angry. And then you talked about Sauce's party, so I just had to call in. But uh, you were talking about uh, what <laughs> Bernie, like, forget Tom Cotton. Like, I was going to say, like, he's a fraud. Like, we need to point out, like, he's a fascist. Like, these fascists are rising. We need to point them out for being frauds. Like, they spent $7.8 trillion added to the debt and are acting like Democrats spend more when they obviously spend less. It's ridiculous. But you brought up uh, Bernie Sanders mm. and were uh, wondering what policies he really didn't focus on in 2020 opposed to 2016. And mm-hmm. I cannot recall one time when he brought up uh, breaking up Wall Street. And that is a big mm. issue. And I, Good point. I do not understand why he didn't mention it, because I supported Bernie all the way back since 2011. Like when I was 16, I was calling Obama a Republican mm-hmm. and saying like I'd rather Bernie Sanders be president. So I've wanted Bernie <laughs> to be president for a while, but that's one thing that I liked about him, but it made me so mad how he didn't even mention it in 2020. Like I, I think that, that is, is an a excellent point. big thing that he just abandoned when a lot of people don't like wall street, especially in rural America, rural, rural, you know? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, thank you for that, Tucker. I think that that is, that is spot on. And I do think that some of that was because Hillary was such a good antagonist for that. I think that part of it is because we were so much, I mean, we were relatively closer to the financial crisis and it was perceived to be more of an issue that was still being discussed. You know, that was a big part of Obama's legacy and we were coming out of Obama and deciding what to do next. Obviously four years after that is not much longer after that. And we all know that Americans never actually recovered from that crisis. So I think it would have been very ripe for Bernie to, acknowledge that so many people are still in the throes of that financial crisis. And um, I got to say, that's not even something that occurred to me at any point. So thank you for that. And I do think that that particular Trump did talk about in 2016, the failure of Obama to bail out homeowners in the same way that that Trump also talked about um, the nineties era trade agreements that sent jobs overseas. That was quote unquote a long time ago, but it still obviously lived very fresh in people's memories. And I think you're you're right to point out that just because something is kind of outside of the current fleet of political coverage, doesn't mean that it's not still considered to be a kitchen table issue for millions of Americans who are still trying to figure out how to wrangle their pensions to last the rest of their life because of all that they lost in the financial crisis. And that's a really good note for a lot of these Democrats going into midterms, the problem is that it's the rare Democrat who actually is willing to call out Wall Street because so many are in bed with them. So that's going to take another Bernie Sanders coming down the pike and not sure who that is or when that'll be. But I appreciate that, Tucker, and I appreciate you knowing about our guy Bernie so early and being an advocate an advocate for him um, so long before many people like me got, got hip to the game. Well, it's no problem, man. You go have a nice day. Thank you. Thank you for that, Tucker. And with that, I am going to leave you all. I want to remind you that it would really help me out 
if you guys can make clips, if you spoke during this episode and want to push it to social media, this app gives you the functionality to highlight like a little two minute hunk of what was said. If there was a part of this podcast or some remarks that you thought was particularly spicy or good or informative, go ahead and use the clip tool. It shows up in my feed and then I can push it to my social media and I will push it to Twitter and push it to wherever. Go ahead and clip where you spoke. If that's what you want me to push, I don't really care. All I know is that I spend too much time posting on social media, making clips, et cetera, and I cannot add another thing to my roster, but I do want to promote this show and all of the really insightful comments that you guys made. So go ahead and think about doing that, sharing to your social. I really appreciate you all. This has been a dream. I'm really enjoying Colin. We'll be doing this again. See you next Tuesday and have a wonderful night. Wish I was a lion in the tall grass. Wish I had a pilot in a podcast. Wish I had a strong donkey that can holler ass and travel with portable speakers playing bars scans. Wish I had a million dollars. Wish I had a million albums. Wish I had a million problems. That way I couldn't pinpoint all one million outcomes. I wish I found a genie man. I wish them girls gave me them sugar like beanie man. Yeah. I wish I was a comedian. Late night sitcom syndicated on TV land. I wish this well had water in it. These kids are stealing all my pennies. Focused on my wealth. You can help me wish, but I would rather wish the help is like, it's like, I wish, I wish. And every time we dive in, it feels just like this. I wish, I wish. And every time we do it, it feels just like this. I wish, I wish. And every time we dive in, it feels just like this. It feels just like this.